Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion. I'm your host, Bill Real. I think this episode is really going to turn out uh, exciting. As I prepared for this episode, I just learned so many cool things and just found this story to be just so exciting. And so I hope that it comes across to you, the listener, that way. Uh, also, I just want to say, too, we're, we're up to about 15,000 listeners a month. Uh, that's individual ISP addresses. Those are hopefully unique listeners, I think, in, in some way. And by unique, I mean each of those 15,000 is a different person. And uh, we've got about 120 to 130 of you who are paid listeners to the podcast, your subscribers. To the other 14,870 of you, uh, would love to have more of you on board as premium subscribers. Um, I'm working probably 55 hours a week, and this podcast takes time and energy, and I'd love to keep it going, but I'm really hoping that some of you, if I can just, you know, plead this across, if, if some of you can step up and become premium subscribers and, and kick in 12 bucks a year and help us to, to keep this podcast going and make it the success that it's been so far and to continue growing as it has. Again, I want to just say thank you to each of you for listening. I hope this podcast is a net positive for you. I know some episodes are more negative. I know some episodes are more positive. Uh, but I hope that you feel as we tackle these issues here on this podcast that, uh, that while I'm leading with faith, I'm also not ducking or hiding behind issues or putting the best spin on impossible simply to, to be faithful. Rather, I want to try to be honest and sincere as I tackle these issues. Today is going to be just, again, a, a fun episode. Today I want to talk about the life, the trial, and the outcome of that trial with former apostle uh, John Whitaker Taylor. Uh, so I'll start with some background. John Whitaker Taylor is the son of the third president of the church, John Taylor. And John Whitaker Taylor was born on May 15th, 1858 in Provo, Utah. He was raised in Salt Lake City for most of his youth. And at the age of 25, he marries and moves to, I believe it's pronounced Cassia County, Idaho. Uh, his wife is May Leona Rich. She is the daughter of John Taylor Rich and Agnes Young. Now, John Taylor Rich was the oldest son of John Taylor's sister, Agnes, John Taylor, the third president of the church, his sister, Agnes, and her husband, John Rich. So what we have here is John Whitaker Taylor, son of John Taylor, the president of the church, marrying essentially his cousin. And, uh, you know, early LDS history, polygamy, you know, some of that's going on. And and so we should probably expect to see some of these, uh, you know, close-knit relationships on the family tree. And uh, I want to give a little background as we go through this. Again, try to keep this in mind. This is John Whitaker Taylor, the son of third president of the church, uh, John Taylor. So John Whitaker, he displayed a mature understanding of gospel principles at a young age. There's lots of stories of, of him being very dedicated to the gospel. For instance, he memorized many scriptures uh, on his first LDS mission. Uh, he went to the southern states. And he carried in his mind, it's recorded that he carried in his mind 400 scriptures memorized in preparation to serve. Uh, there's a note that most of those came from the Old and New Testament. What is an interesting note about this mission, in the fall of 1880, Elder John Whitaker Taylor is called on a mission to the southern states with, as his companion, Elder Matthias F. Cowley. 
Now that name should ring a bell for those of you who are interested in LDS history. This is uh, a friend of his in a sense, I believe, growing up and, and he's assigned by uh, President John Morgan to serve with Elder Matthias F. Cowley and introduce the gospel into Terrell and Randolph counties, southwest Georgia, uh, they being the first elders in that part of the state. And so John Whitaker Taylor and Matthias uh, F. Cowley uh, go to the southern states, and particularly in Georgia, and they begin serving their mission. And later on, they end up, the mission ends, and uh, John uh, Whitaker Taylor ends up serving another mission, and he serves in Butler County, uh, Kentucky. And this is, uh, this, this incident happens on March 19th of 1882. He ends up, uh, writing a letter to Matthew F. Cowley, his friend, who at the time was also laboring as a missionary in St. Louis, Missouri. So both these men are, are serving multiple missions for the church. They're extremely dedicated. And in this letter, he makes this prediction. He tells, uh, his friend, Brother Cowley, he says, I believe I speak by the spirit of prophecy when I say, if you are faithful, you will yet become one of the twelve apostles of the church of Jesus Christ in all the world. And by the power of God and the eternal priesthood will become great in wisdom and in knowledge. Amen. Unquote. So John W. Taylor has this revelation that Matthias Cowley is to become an apostle. And this isn't the first time in John Taylor's life that this happens. He, If we read the history of John W. Taylor, his life is full of dreams and visions and, and prophecies where things happen and he takes some divine meaning out of it and it actually comes to pass and these things happen. And so uh, just maybe one example or a couple of examples of this, spiritually gifted and talking about how Taylor receives many visions in his boyhood and young adulthood that turn out to be prophetic. And these things strengthened his faith. They build his testimony. He, he gains what, what we in the church would say is this knowledge that the gospel is true, that Jesus is the Christ, that Joseph Smith is his prophet. And so there were people who would listen to John W. Taylor preaching as a missionary and they would say they could see something in his countenance that it, that it would shine brighter than those around him. And they talked about how the Holy Ghost inspired his speech so that all who listened were touched. In his boyhood days, while working at his father's sawmill, for instance, he received some remarkable dreams that were prophetic in their nature, which have since been verified. These manifestations were living testimonies to him that Jesus was the Christ and, again, that Joseph Smith was his prophet. So vivid were these dreams that they are as clear on his memory much later in his life as the day that they happened and we have other people within his life who are who are sharing thoughts on this. In 1876, for instance, he received a patriarchal blessing under the hands of Patriarch William McBride, in which his call to the public ministry was predicted, together with uh, other most remarkable prophecies, several of which um, we have recorded instances of them being fulfilled. John W. Taylor was called to the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles in 1884, he was uh, extended this call to be an apostle and a member of the Quorum of the Twelve by his father. It's his father who receives inspiration or revelation that this is this call is supposed to take place. And so he's ordained on May 15th, 1884, and he is uh, sustained on April 9th of that year. As a practitioner of plural marriage, 
John W. Taylor marries five additional women after his first wife. He marries a lady by the name of Nellie Todd, another by the name of Janet Marie Woolley, which that last name should also ring a bell. He married an Eliza Roxy Welling, a Rhoda Welling, and an Ellen Georgina Sandberg. I'm sure there's stories behind each of these sisters and their lives and their experiences, but for today's episode, I just want to focus on John W. Taylor. In, uh, in 1890, we're all very well aware that Wilfred Woodruff issues the manifesto, which becomes official uh, declaration, I believe official declaration one, uh, in our Pearl of Great Price, where we are taught today that Wilfred Woodruff receives a revelation and to hence, to essentially end polygamy. And now we're beginning to kind of grasp as as a culture that that qu- didn't quite happen the way we were taught growing up. That in reality, Wilford Woodruff's manifesto is really only serves to calm the pu- general public down. And meanwhile, polygamy and plural marriages continue on. We know that in 1904, the prophet Joseph F. Smith adds a punishment of excommunication for those who continue the practice. Again, this is a public statement. We do, as we go through this episode, I hope we'll kind of see that this is still messier yet than what we think. Polygamy was tough on the early Latter-day Saints. There are lots of experiences. We have some sisters who who testify of how much a blessing plural marriage was, but while that is happening, we also have lots of sisters whose testimony bears witness of how difficult plural marriage was in the sacrifice, in the hardship that it was. John W. Taylor was a very staunch believer in the doctrine of plural marriage. He had a total of six wives and 36 children, and although the church officially forbade the practice with the 1890 Manifesto and then the second 1904 Manifesto, Taylor continues to privately both marry additional wives, these six, some of these six, and also he is authorizing in performing other plural marriages. So I want to essentially turn over now to an account. This is an interview between Brad Kramer and Damon M. Smith, Damon M. Smith um, wrote some some articles on polygamy and the history of it and sits down with Brad Kramer and is essentially just kind of having a Q&A with him. And so Damon Smith and Brad Kramer end up sharing some really neat uh, commentary on what's going on at this time. And so Damon Smith says, he says, they, the brethren, uh, the quorum of the 12 in the first presidency, begin as they're getting more and more uncomfortable with uh, with polygamy and as they pull further and further back the church's support for plural marriage. And again, there's no real easy way to say on this very day, the church no longer supported plural marriage. It's just messier than that. And we'll see that as we go on. But as the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency begin to learn that John Taylor is really pushing ahead with plural marriage and that the brethren outside of him and a few others are pulling back, they begin to issue a number of subpoenas to John W. Taylor for him to appear before the Quorum of the Twelve. And uh, Damon Smith says this. He says, at first, 
He doesn't respond. Eventually, he shows up. And after cursing George Albert Smith with health problems, and Smith did have ensuing problems with physical and mental health, and after demanding that Joseph F. call up the Council of Fifty in his defense, a request that Joseph F. basically scoffs at, after all this, Taylor is basically on his own. Damon continues. They actually didn't have a lot of evidence against Cowley. Now, I should back up here. Matthias Cowley is also doing the same thing. He is another one of the members of the Twelve who is authorizing plural marriage while the brethren are pulling back. And while we there's less evidence or no evidence of Matthias Cowley entering more plural marriages himself, he seems to have the most evidence against him for authorizing others to enter plural marriage. John W. Taylor is kind of the opposite. We don't have as much evidence of him authorizing them, but we know that he's entering them himself. And so the brethren are growing very impatient with these two apostles. Now, again, remember, these two men served a mission together. They are good friends, and uh, they are very close. Damon says they don't, they didn't actually have a lot of evidence against Cowley. Patriarch Tolman had said that he was involved, and while they probably had more against Cowley in terms of encouraging others to do it than they did against Taylor, Taylor is obviously taking new wives, even after 1904. They had been slowly relocating the timeline for when new plural wives were and weren't acceptable. Of course, 1890 was the official one, but no one really followed it. In 1899 from Snow, but no one really followed that. I think he's talking about Lorenzo Snow. 1904, 1905, he continues. So they keep sort of sliding the timeline for when you could last have taken a plural wife legitimately, closer and closer to the present. But Taylor was clearly not paying attention to any of these timelines. And throughout all these hearings with all these men of lower ranks, they had garnered a critical mass of suspicion and corroboration among the apostles that Taylor was really the guy behind all this. And it's important to keep in mind as well that Taylor had real enemies in the Quorum of the Twelve for reasons that went well beyond polygamy. Finances were a big issue, says Damon. Taylor was convinced that the majority of the trouble that had come upon the church over polygamy was really because the church was involved in all these business ventures. And the judgment was taken as a direct condemnation of Heber J. Grant and Lyman as well as Joseph F., Talking about Joseph F. Smith. Damon continues, he says, So Taylor is taking an increasingly hard line that polygamy cannot be renounced. And he's insisting that the only reason he's in trouble is that these other guys were making a bunch of money getting themselves entangled in finances, which, from his perspective, they never should have done. Damon continues, Even though later fundamentalists would try to assume the mantle of his legacy and come to him trying to get him to be the prophet of their movement, try to get him to start a schismatic group. Taylor refused it. He never, as far as I know, spoke out publicly against any of these guys. He certainly never took the stance that the gospel had been taken from the earth or the priesthood was gone or the church was in apostasy. Although privately, he certainly had reservations about the course that the Quorum of the Twelve had taken in respect to polygamy 
as well as business and politics. Now, it should be noted here, too, as we think about some of these fundamentalist groups that break off the church over polygamy, that if you were to go to the group at Centennial Park or talk to leaders in the FLDS group and ask them what they make in their history of these splits, I've learned an interesting fact since moving to St. George and, and having spoken to several several prominent members of some of these breakoff groups. And what I have learned is that these men would in their in their rhetoric, in their way of describing the breakoff, would very much separate the priesthood from the church. And what they would say is that when the church denounced polygamy, that it had essentially lost the priesthood. And these breakoff groups said, Hey, we took the priesthood with us. We kept doing what God asked us to do. And so we've got the priesthood. Meanwhile, the church is still legitimate, but they're two separate entities. Does that make sense? You guys hope you're, hopefully you're following along here that, that these breakoff fundamentalist polygamous groups say, look, we've got the priesthood. Meanwhile, the LDS church has the church organization. And early on, they would completely validate that the church was still authorized to be the church, but that they were authorized by God to have the priesthood and to not break away any of these uh, original doctrines, such as polygamy. And they would tell you that in this early history, there's kind of this uh, nod and wink between the two groups, that the LDS group is essentially saying, look, we can't do polygamy anymore. You guys go over there and you continue polygamy and keep that doctrine going. And we'll stay over here and just publicly talk about how we're not doing that and we're trying to, you know, abide by the law and, and succumb to what the government is asking. But that there's this mutual understanding between the two groups that both of them are fulfilling a divine mission within the church. Now that's the take that some of these breakoff groups would give you. So the pressure gets so big on John W. Taylor that, because he is just adamant that polygamy needs to continue and that is something he is just absolutely sure of. And yet the 12 in the first presidency are coming to him and Matthias Cowley and, and essentially saying, guys, we're, we're stopping this and you have to stop it. And so John W. Taylor resigns from his position as one of the 12 apostles. He, uh, this happens in the April 1906 general conference where the brethren announce that both John W. Taylor as well as Matthias Cowley have resigned from the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. These two men leave the, leave the, the highest quorum of the church together and it's over this issue of polygamy. So with the leaving of Matthias Cowley, the resigning of Matthias Cowley and of John W. Taylor, and also the death of Mariner W. Merrill. So in the April General Conference of 1906, when these resignations are announced and also that this death of this other apostle happens, three new apostles are called to replace them. George F. Richards, Orson F. Whitney, and David O. McKay. Now Taylor after his resignation, continues to dispute with the Quorum of the Twelve, you know, beyond his resignation. He just continues to kind of be a, a thorn in their side. You know, he's just kind of, kind of itching against their skin. And so what happens next is the brethren decide to call John W. Taylor in for a disciplinary council. Now, 
the really interesting thing about this is that we have the minutes of this disciplinary council. And so I'd like to read that verbatim and interject some of my thoughts as I go through this because I think they're really interesting and I think they make a really good point about what's kind of going on as this uh, as this is happening. So I'll just kind of read this. This is uh, kind of sections as days go on through this uh, ordeal. Minutes of a meeting of the Twelve Apostles held in Salt Lake Temple, February 22nd, 1911, at 10 a.m., at which were present President Francis M. Lyman, Heber J. Grant, Hiram M. Smith, Charles W. Penrose, George F. Richards, Orson F. Whitney, David O. McKay, Anthony W. Ivins, and Joseph F. Smith, Jr. Also by request, John W. Taylor, in answer to the following summons. Salt Lake City, Utah, February 15, 1911, signed Elder John W. Taylor, Salt Lake City, Utah. Dear Brother, by these presents you are summoned to appear before the Council of the Twelve Apostles in the Salt Lake Temple at 10 a.m. on Wednesday, February 22, 1911, to vindicate yourself of the claim entertained by your brethren that you have married a plural wife within the last six years, contrary to the discipline of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that you have aided and encouraged others to enter such a relationship. You will also be required to answer any and all questions that may be put to you by the council upon these points to tell us the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Do not fail to appear, as we shall be in session there, and then to receive you. Respectfully, your brother, Francis M. Lyman, in behalf of the council. Now notice the date on this is 1911, and the accusation is that he is being accused of having taken a plural wife in the last, sometime in the last six years. So that would put us at 1905, which already begins to make this 1904 date a little fuzzy in terms of the date they are setting as the line at which plural marriages after this point would be wrong. So then they get to the actual meeting. It says the meeting was opened by singing in prayer. President Lyman said, we have met to consider Brother Taylor's case. We want to be deliberate but do not want to make, do not want to take too much time, no more than is necessary. We want Brother Taylor to have every liberty to say everything that he has to say on this case and in the investigation of this matter, to say everything that he has to say and to be respectful to us and we to him. And I hope the investigation will not be disagreeable. If it is necessary to take more than one day, we shall take it. I take it for granted that we are ready to take up the matter and that you, Brother John, are ready. Brother Taylor says, yes, sir. President Lyman continues, a few months ago, I think within the, and, and I'll have to stop here and say this, there are parts of this uh, this text that as I read it, it's obvious that there's a word or two missing or that somehow something gets kind of lost as the scribe or whoever is recording this uh, writes this down. So again, President Lyman continues, a few months ago, I think within the, and then I don't know what this is, this next part, says John Taylor had married a plural wife and that she was his typewriter and that the girl had a baby and that John W. Taylor was the father of the child 
and that he had married her. We have also come to understand that Brother Taylor and Brother Cowley had authorized Patriarch Wolf, formerly of Cardston, to perform plural marriages. A number of parties called on him and learned that he claimed his authority came from the brethren, Taylor and Cowley. That stirred it up a little, and we knew that Brother Taylor would know all about these matters, and we concluded to summons him and he could tell us. And if he has been falsified against, he can clear himself, and if it is true, he will have the courage to acknowledge it. And to this end, the summons, as above mentioned, was served on him by Brother Ivans. I believe we are prepared now, Brother John, to hear your answer. Brother uh, John W. Taylor then presents his answer in written form as follows. This is still February 22nd, 1911. Says your, this is John W. Taylor speaking. Says your communication of February 15th, 1911 is received. In reply, I'll say, I believe all that God has revealed with regard to the eternity of the marriage covenant. In the celestial order of marriage, I accept as true all the revelations received by the prophet of the Lord upon this subject. Certain interpretations of the rules of the church with regard to these matters have been made and have been presented to and approved by vote of the people. As far as consistent with my obligations to my family, I desire to be in harmony with the same. In other words, certain sections of of revelation from the brethren have been accepted as canon and voted on. And that I don't believe as of this date that official declaration one or the 1904 declaration are yet canonized. And so what John Taylor is saying is, look, I am trying to live by the standard works, and you guys are the ones who are outside of that. He then continues. He says, I deny having aided or encouraged others to enter into polygamous marriages since my resignation as a member of the Council of Apostles. I object to being compelled to give evidence personally at my own trial about my family affairs on the ground that it is contrary to the revelation of God and the Constitution of the United States, States, which myself of, and request that they be respected. And so what he's saying here is that there's a section of the DNC that talks about that the church will not operate under rules that are outside of the Constitution of the United States. And since the Constitution of the United States has the rule that one does not need to testify against themselves, to bear witness against themselves, that one can then plead the fifth and and not speak up as a witness in charges that are against themselves. And so John W. Taylor here, knowing his scriptures, knowing the precedents that have been set, is essentially saying, look, I'm not going to say anything about my personal situation. So President Lyman continues, he says, the first complaint and most serious one is the plural marriage to your typewriter, a girl by the name of Sandberg. We would like to know regarding it. And so John W. Taylor answers. He says, I would like to say, brethren, that you have taken the initiative in this fight. I have not, and I have come as one of your brethren, but with no hope or desire of being connected with this council at any time in the future. And I wish to reset, I'm sorry, and I wish to rest my case upon the statement in my letter. And in doing so, I wish to be respectful in all that I say in the matter. I have never spoken against my brethren. I would like to rest my case upon the statements in the above letter, unless you have some witnesses against me. I have denied encouraging other people to enter into this relationship. So John W. Taylor shows up 
he has this letter that he essentially says, look, this is my testimony on the matter. They read it. They're not satisfied. They keep asking more questions. And so now he's having to personally speak up and answer for himself. President Lyman continues, Brother Penrose and I have almost forgotten how we came to learn of Brother Wolf. I remember talking with him to some extent about how he got the authority to perform plural marriages, whether the brethren laid their hands on him, as in the case of ordaining him a patriarch, or in the case of patriarchal blessings. He said they had simply told him he could perform the plural marriages. When Brother Taylor, myself, and Brother Card went to Ottawa in Canada in 1888 to see the Minister MacDonald about protecting our people who were compelled to leave Utah on account of the persecution, and he said whatever the law would permit, we could do and be protected in it, and the law would permit us to bring one wife there and as many children as we wanted. But two wives of one man could not live in Canada, and we so reported to the people there and to the brethren here. And I was very much surprised when I heard of Brother Wolf inasmuch as he was present when the above report was made. And as I remember, was made Bishop of a Ward organization at that time. I told Brother Wolf that he had no excuse whatever for doing this marrying. And I also told his son, and then here's another glitch, I don't know what's going on here, President's Office, it says, at which time, however, I didn't understand the son had taken a plural wife. Now you know, Brother Taylor, about this. And and I should pause here for just a moment. You see here, there's this idea that, you know, polygamy is illegal in the United States, polygamy is illegal in Canada, but if we just take one wife to Canada and leave one wife in the U.S., we're not breaking Canada's rules. And so they're looking for loopholes around it, and they're they're essentially seeking out permission to at least take one of their wives and some of their children across the border into Canada. So John W. Taylor speaks up. He says, I do not think it would be wise for me to even speak about that here. I would rather assume the responsibility than talk upon such a delicate point. I do not care what becomes of me. I haven't the least regard as far as I am individually concerned. You may not believe what I say when I state that I have always felt that there are duties which devolve upon one to keep still under some conditions which are more responsible than others. I don't think Brother Cowley had anything to do with it. I acknowledge that I had a conversation with Brother Wolf on this matter, and there were others of the brethren present, and I believe the conditions justified it. I don't believe that I could tell you the whole truth without implicating others, which I don't think it would be well to do, and I think it would be well to allow the things to set as at present, and I will assume the whole responsibility. I am not interested much in Canada now, but a law was passed there about two years ago which is very drastic against polygamy and those who have entered this relationship. It subjects the people to the confiscation of their property and banishment if proven guilty. So I would suggest that things not be stirred up too much in that direction. This I simply mention as a matter of information. So you see what's happening, right? John W. Taylor is willing to be the scapegoat. He's willing to take the fall because he realizes several things. One is that he doesn't want to get his own wives and children into trouble. So he's trying to say as little about his personal situation as he can. He also knows, and he's saying that, look, this would implicate others. There are other people still practicing polygamy that if we sit here and have this conversation, now we're putting something in the record 
that legal authorities can go after these people, break up these families, banish the fathers or the wives to, to go back across the border, and all of a sudden we will have families that are ripped apart. And John W. Taylor, I think, to his credit, is, is willing to take the fall to avoid any kind of harm on somebody else. At this point, uh, A.W. Ivan speaks up. He says, do you think that is the reason why the thing should be dropped? Brother Taylor says, yeah, yes, sir. President Lyman says, will you explain why you authorize Brother Wolf to perform plural marriages? Now listen to this answer. John W. Taylor says, I only authorized him to perform one, and this was a case of merit. But I told him to investigate very thoroughly before performing the ceremony, to travel with the man sleep with him and talk with him for three months and to investigate very thoroughly. I simply delivered a message to him from some in authority. The same as when I was traveling with Henry Smith years ago, he performed certain ceremonies and rites, and I performed others for reasons which we understood at the time. I only authorized brother Wolf to marry brother Levitt. Now, the key sentence in this answer from Brother Taylor is that I I simply delivered a message to him from some in authority. What John W. Taylor is saying is that somebody with a higher pay grade than myself commissioned this man to perform this additional plural marriage. President Lyman responds, I haven't heard so much about Brother Taylor as I have about Brother Cowley. Do you know where Brother Cowley is at present? Brother Taylor responds regarding his friend. I understand he is in Oregon selling steel ties. I think I could get a letter to him. Hiram M. Smith says, I would be willing to allow Brother Taylor to assume the responsibility he speaks about if it would rest with him, but it would not. It rests with the church. Now keep in mind too, as we go through this, that some of these apostles are relatively new. That polygamy publicly and out front in the church ended in 1890. That quietly and privately, leaders and a few other members continue to practice polygamy to at least 1904. These new apostles being called are not polygamist. David O. McKay is not a polygamist. These these other two brethren who are called, Orson F. Whitney, I don't believe is a polygamist. And and even if so, even if Orson F. Whitney or or Richards are, they're not by this time. And as far as they understand when they enter the Quorum of the Twelve, polygamy ended in 1890. They haven't quite gotten the grasp, maybe, perhaps, that polygamy continues past 1890. And so you'll see, as this continues, some of the brethren are, are much softer in their words and probably would much rather just sweep this under the rug and walk away from it. Other brethren are much more interested in kind of getting to the bottom of what's going on. Charles W. Penrose responds, do you remember the exact words you said to Brother Wolf? Do you, did you not intimate that he would perform other marriages? President, or, I'm sorry, Brother John Whitaker Taylor responds, I don't think I would. President Lyman asks, did you feel authorized yourself? John W. Taylor responds, no, I did not. So there's a key too. He's saying, look, I wasn't under the authority of myself. I was going on behalf of someone else in authority to deliver this message to this brother wolf to perform these extra plural marriages, or at least this one extra plural marriage. President Lyman then says, I asked brother wolf if the people came to him with recommends 
and he said no. They came to him with word from Brother Taylor and Brother Cowley. Brother John W. Taylor then responds, Brother Wolf is a faithful brother and has done a great deal of good for the church. And I think if their matters pertain to the marriages in Canada could be let go, it would be for the best. That I may not be misunderstood or accused of lying, I want to make a statement. I have performed two ceremonies, but they are old ones, and Brother Lyman and President Smith are acquainted with them. I assume the responsibility for it. I think they were before President Smith's administration, and they were very heartily approved of by the brethren when they were reported. I would like to inquire if any of the brethren you have had before you have said that I have done any marrying. So he's taking this kind of stance that, look, I've done it twice before. I had permission to do this. I had approval from the brethren when I, when, when they all figured it out. And I'd like to ask if there's anybody coming forward that said I, I've done anything outside of this. President Lyman responds, no, not one of them. And I have always said that I did not think you had done much of it, only where you had taken a wife yourself. Charles W. Penrose says, What about those on the trip through Arizona and Mexico with Brother John Henry Smith? Brother Taylor responds, On that trip we married over 90 couples, and a good many of them were plural marriages. This was in 1897. The two cases I referred to could also be put on the old list since 1890, but not since 1904. In other words, yeah, they certainly came after the first manifesto, but they did not come after the second. Brother Penrose responds, Brother Taylor has pleaded to one of the charges, that he is not aided in these plural marriages, but does not want to answer the other. Brother Taylor responds, I do not want to say anything on that, but leave the matter with you. I prefer to claim this privilege, which I mentioned in my answer. Hiram M. Smith says, So you think this thing is going on? Or have you any knowledge of its going on now? Brother Taylor responds, I think it has stopped, and it is not going on, and that it would be a dangerous thing to agitate the question at this time. I think the church is in an awkward position at this time. President Lyman says, Do you think the church is to blame for this? Or are the ones who are encouraging it? Are there any conditions that would justify it? Do you feel it would be right for you to do it? John W. Taylor answers, I do not. And then somebody else asks him, and I don't have the name here, but they say, do you think it would be wrong for me to go and get another wife? And Brother Taylor responds, it would depend on the circumstances. Hiram M. Smith asks, in view of the fact that the church has taken a very emphatic stand against this thing and said that it cannot be done, and still some of the people have assumed to perform and encourage these marriages in the face of this position, do you think they are justified in this? And John W. Taylor answers them. I do not want to discuss my own case. It is up to you and the brethren to pass upon that. I am living among the Philistines, and you brethren are among the Mormons. There is one thing that is much more serious in my mind than polygamy, and I am not mentioning it to aid me in my case at all. When the Enabling Act was passed, there were two things that were promised. One thing was that polygamy would be stopped and the other that church influence would not be used in politics. My father received a revelation, which, however, was never presented to the church, and I refer to this not because it is a revelation to my father. I don't think a revelation, because it came through him, was any greater than one received 
through any other president of the church, but because it seems to pertain to this question. Now, let me stop here for a moment. John W. Taylor is about to pull a revelation out, and this revelation is unknown to at least some of the apostles in that room. So he pulls this revelation out, and he begins to read it. And here it goes. September 27th, 1886. You have asked me concerning the new and everlasting covenant and how far it is binding upon my people. Thus saith the Lord, all commandments that I have given must be obeyed by those calling themselves by my name, unless they are revoked by me or by my authority. And how can I revoke an everlasting covenant? For I, the Lord, am everlasting, and my everlasting covenant cannot be abrogated nor done away, but they stand forever. Have I not given my word in great plainness upon this subject, yet have not great numbers of my people been negligent in the observance of my law and the keeping of my commandments? Yet I have borne with them these many years, and this because of their weakness, because of the perilous times. And furthermore, it is now pleasing to me that men should use their free agency in regard to these matters. Nevertheless, I, the Lord, do not change. And my word and my law and my covenants do not. And as I have heretofore said by my servant Joseph, all those who would enter into my glory must and shall obey my law. And have I not commanded men that if they were Abraham's seed and would enter into my glory, they must do the works of Abraham? I have not revoked this law, nor will I, for it is everlasting, and those who will enter into my glory must obey the conditions thereof. Even so, amen. So John Taylor presents this revelation, and Brother Charles W. Penrose reads it. And the key phrase here, there's a couple of them. One is that plural marriage is being compared to the everlasting covenant, that we now in present day have separated these two terms and have tried to impose the idea that the everlasting covenant is just eternal marriage, not necessarily plural marriage. But this proposed revelation that John W. Taylor provides is making them one and the same. The other thing it does is say that this everlasting covenant or plural marriage will never be revoked. It will never end. It will never be taken away. Again, at least most, if not all the other brethren in this room, are completely unaware of this revelation and its existence. John W. Taylor says this. He says, there are two things I am drawing your attention to. I am not in politics and very little in the church, but I do this as a matter of privilege. This revelation is either true or it is false. Assuming that it is true, it seems to me that it would be better to offer leniency on the side of the Lord if you are going to offer any leniency than on the side of politics. There is a very large number of people who feel outraged at the way they have been treated with politics in this state. There are men who have reached the point at this time with the least little agitation would do something rash. I regret exceedingly that others are attacking the church, and I hope you will not mention my name in any way as connected with those men. I loathe Frank Cannon, Dubois, Kearns, and those connected with them. And I look upon them as con contemptible curs. I mention these things as one desiring the advancement of the church and as one who was at one time closely connected with it. There is ten times the feeling over the breaking of the compact made with the government regarding the church's influence in politics that there is over the polygamous marriages. I mingle among all the classes of people 
which is not the case with you, brethren, and therefore believe my impressions are correct. As an illustration, Sister Susa Y. Gates came down to Provo, where I am living, and called the sisters together and told them that the brethren wanted them to vote the Republican ticket. I have heard statements made which lead me to believe that some men would take the life of a person with very little provocation on account of the feeling of this question. My own opinion is that the difficulties this people are experiencing is through using church influence in politics. So John W. Taylor here is venting a little bit and saying, look, man, you guys are, you guys are, some of you are going out there and, and telling bishops and state presidents to tell members to vote the Republican ticket. You're, you're having influence in the political realm. And there was an obligation early on to never do that. And yet you're doing it. And, uh, as he's also doing, he's also saying, Hey, there's others outside the church who are fighting against you guys who, who could cause some trouble if you guys keep pushing buttons. Charles W. Penrose responds, I suggest that we leave politics alone. And I assume here he's not talking about the brethren leaving politics alone, but rather John W. Taylor leaving the conversation about it alone. Brother Taylor responds, I would like to ask if you think a man who has been married since 1890 is living in adultery. President Lyman says, I don't think that matter has been passed upon, but the church does not recognize marriages since 1890 or does not shoulder any responsibility for unlawful cohabitation. So what President Lyman's essentially saying is that any marriages that were already in effect, you know, we're not going to say anything on that. But any marriages that are are performed since 1890, the church doesn't recognize them. And it shouldn't shoulder any responsibility if anybody gets in trouble with the law over them. He's He's kind of hedging a little bit. John W. Taylor responds, Brother Lyman, what do you think of the revelation to my father? President Lyman asks, If you ask me if I believe in the plurality of wives, I would say that I believe it is true and will always be so. But the Lord may suspend the practice of it and how much of the responsibility remains with the people and with the government. I don't know. I am living with my wives now all the time, but I don't hold the church responsible for it, but shoulder the responsibility myself. In 1900, President Snow said there were no marriages. And, and I, there's a mix-up here. I can't quite make out what's being said. You were, and so I'll continue. Uh, president Lyman continues. He said, you were present when President Snow was sustained as president of the church. And he made the statement that there should be no more plural marriages performed with the permission of the president of the church. In a short time later, published to the world through the Deseret News, this statement. Have you been authorized since President Snow's presidency to perform or authorize any plural marriages. And and so here, first off, President Lyman is acknowledging that even as late as this this council, this disciplinary council is being held, he is still living with his uh, polygamous wives, with his plural wives. John W. Taylor responds to this question of if he's been authorized since President Snow's presidency. John Taylor says, That I would prefer not to answer, as it would lead to something else. My view is that the Lord was anxious to put everybody upon his own responsibility and take the responsibility from the church. So again, Brother Taylor seems hesitant to throw somebody under the bus and to detract this disciplinary council away from him being able to take full accountability and not to have anybody else get in trouble over this. He also has this kind of well-worded last sentence here, 
which seems to be saying that while the church officially took its uh, its name out of the hat for as a entity performing plural marriages, that leaders in the church and members in the church could still participate in plural marriage, except they would be doing it individually and that it would no longer be the church's responsibility. President Lyman continues, that is what the people have done and rejected the law of plural marriage up to the issuance of the manifesto. It was never taught that it would be given up. I don't think it would for a minute. Still, I believe the manifesto of President Woodruff was from the Lord. The law will stand forever, but the practice was discontinued. Brother Taylor responds, I believe it. I do not want to sew up the mouth of the Lord, so to speak. President Lyman says, I believe the Lord expects us to keep our word with the government and with the people. He referred to President Snow's remarks when he was selected president of the church by the Council of the Twelve. I have no fault to find with the revelation. Charles W. Penrose says, Do you understand the free agency referred to in the revelation gives anyone the privilege of taking a plural wife? Brother Taylor responds, I take it that it refers to the individual and relieve the church of the responsibility and place the responsibility upon the individual. Again, Brother Taylor is saying that leaders and members were still free to seal plural marriages, to perform plural marriages, and to enter into plural marriages, but that each individual was now responsible if he got into trouble and the church itself was no longer as an entity condoning it. At the same time, leaders on an individual basis may have certainly been condoning it, and it seems like at least some of the brethren, along with Brother Taylor, are agreeing, at least Brother Penrose to some extent, that that was the case. President Lyman says, when did you find this revelation? Brother Taylor responds, I found it on his desk. He's talking about his father. Immediately after his death, when I was appointed a minister of his estate. So John Taylor, third president of the church, passes away. John W. Taylor goes into, as the administrator of the estate, to clean things up and to put things in order. And he finds this revelation laying upon John Taylor's desk. Now, let's be honest here. This this also would probably should cause us all to be kind of hesitant and to say, you know, yeah, John W. Taylor conveniently finds a revelation on his father's desk, keeps it secret for you know, a long time, and all of a sudden brings it out when it's convenient. So I'm certainly encouraging all of us to be to be cautious of this detail, an important detail at that. Hiram M. Smith says, I have enjoyed the little visit with Brother Taylor and apologize for the injustice I have done him in feeling that he would not come before us if he were summoned. A.W. Ivins responds, I would like to inquire what Brother Taylor meant when he said it was very inopportune time to deal with his case or the Canadian cases on account of the political situation. John W. Taylor responds, I want to put you clear on that. Whatever I have said about politics, you can count that out. That had nothing to do with my case. I simply wanted to disabuse your minds of any idea you had the impression that I was not connected in any way with any of these men who are fighting against the church. You can do what you think is right with me. You have the authority. Upon that comment... It says, upon motion, meeting adjourned for one week. Essentially, John Taylor pulls out this unknown revelation, at least unknown to some. It catches the brethren off guard, and all of a sudden, they're kind of being uh, pushed off their balance a little bit. And and so the brethren adjourn the meeting 
so that they can then take some time to think about this and work out how they're going to handle it. Damon Smith also adds some thoughts on this whole part of the episode, uh, this part of this experience where he pulls out this revelation. Damon says he practically slams down the revelation on the table and says, well, what do you make of this? As he storms out of the room, it does weaken, at least for the moment, the firm foundation that many of the apostles believe their position to be grounded on. Really, that first day, he comes out feeling pretty good. He feels victorious, like he's laid down a trump card and that they simply cannot counter. Of course, there are quorum members who knew that the 1890 Manifesto was not, at that time, regarded as a revelation. Joseph F. Smith has said as much. So the fact that they now have in front of them something that has all the trappings of a legitimate revelation, addressed to John Taylor from the Lord, clearly stating that this thing cannot ever be taken away. What happens in the subsequent meetings, we want to get into now. So that, uh, so Damon essentially says that, you know, here, John W. Taylor pulls out his trump card. The brethren are, are caught off guard. They adjourn the meeting and, and then pick it back up. At the end of that first meeting, Hiram M. Smith gives the benediction. And then we get to this. It says, minutes of a meeting of the Council of the Twelve held March 1st, 1911 at 10 a.m., at which were president, President Francis M. Lyman, elders Heber J. Grant, Hiram M. Smith, Charles W. Penrose, George F. Richards, Orson F. Whitney, David O. McKay, Anthony W. Ivins, and Joseph F. Smith, Jr. of the council, also John W. Taylor. They sing the hymn, Truth Reflects Upon Our Senses, and then Charles W. Penrose offers the opening prayer. Then they sing again, page 224 of the hymn book. Doesn't say what hymn that was, but page 224 of whatever hymn book they were using. President Lyman then opens up. He says, in answer to, in your answer here, Brother Taylor, in the last few lines, you object to giving testimony personally at your own trial, contrary to the revelations of God in the Constitution of the United States. I was wondering what revelation you referred to. John W. Taylor responds, There is a revelation in the Doctrine and Covenants which says there shall be nothing required of the saints, which is contrary to the Constitution of the United States. Brother Penrose read Article 5 of the Amendments to the Constitution of the United States, which provides that a citizen shall not be required to testify against himself. John W. Taylor then responds, I am not pressing this point only to this extent that it is up to you to deal with me as you see fit. I object to discussing my case in any phase and admit that I am becoming a little careless as to the outcome. I do not want to disturb your feelings at all in this matter. I do, I do not want to stay in the church. If my case disqualifies me in any way, I am willing to be relieved of my church membership. I do not want to say any more regarding my family affairs than I have already said, and I don't know what more I could say. President Lyman says, who has advised you in this matter? John W. Taylor responds, My attorney, John M. Cannon, asked if I wanted to take advantage of this clause in the Constitution. President Lyman responds, Do you think anyone can solemnize plural marriages with authority now? John W. Taylor says, I feel under certain circumstances they could, but it would depend upon the circumstances. President Lyman, what conditions? President Taylor, or uh, Brother John W. Taylor says, I fully explained this last time. And what he's saying again is, if if I have given direction to others 
to perform plural marriages or to enter into plural marriages because someone in authority told me, then what he's answering here in this session is essentially that if someone in authority, president of the church, told me to go perform another plural marriage, then I certainly could do it again. Brother Penrose responds, what are your views with regard to that revelation? Brother Taylor responds, I am not the one to pass upon that revelation. I think you are the ones to do that. Brother Penrose responds, what I desire to get at is how you view the matter, whether you have been guided by that in your case. You brought the revelation to us, and it has never been accepted by the church or presented to it. So they're trying to sidestep it. They're not trying to deal with whether this is a real revelation or not. What they are doing is essentially saying, look, it's never been presented to the church. It's never been sustained or canonized by common consent. And therefore, we're simply going to disregard it. Brother Taylor responds, I think the only thing to do is to go to the presiding priesthood of the Lord and get his idea on it and get him to inquire of the Lord what his mind is regarding it. Of course, the president of the church is not in any of these meetings. Brother Penrose responds, I don't think Brother Taylor should come here and tell us what we need to do. But what I wanted to know is what he thought the president meant by that revelation, whether the man was placed upon his own responsibility by that revelation and the president in the church relieved of all responsibility or not. Brother Ivins intervenes here and and jumps in and says, do you know how extensively this revelation has been circulated in times past and has guided people in their actions in this regard? You see, Brother Ivans here is being caught off guard and he's saying, look, I'm not even aware of this revelation. Do we know, by the way, guys, do we know if this revelation's been spread around? Do we know if other people have referred to this revelation and, and leaned on it for how they've interacted with this principle of plural marriage? Brother Taylor responds, Brother Joseph Robinson came to me and asked for a copy of it upon the suggestion of Brother Cowley, and he got it from Brother Badger. Brother Joseph F. Smith Jr. also got a copy. Now, when we say Joseph F. Smith Jr., I assume we're talking Joseph Fielding Smith also got a copy. But I don't know how many have got copies from these. A.W. Ivins then says, You don't know what inference was placed upon it in early times? Brother Taylor responds, No, I don't know. Brother Ivans says, I asked this question because I have heard some of the brethren interpreted this revelation in this way, and I would like to find out to what extent they had the endorsement of the church in view of this revelation, and what was the reason those brethren went to Canada and Mexico. Do you know what they based their belief upon as they seem to be sincere, whether it was from this revelation or from the president of the church or from what the ground was or from what the ground was taken, that they would come in contact with the law of the land and still went out. I would like to know from Brother Taylor what he knows about this and if they were justified in it. Brother Taylor responds, President Smith has come out on numerous occasions with the statement that there have been no marriages of polygamous nature solemnized with the approval of the church since 1890. He stands at the head of this dispensation at this moment and has adopted that policy. And as far as I am concerned, I don't want to come in conflict with President Smith on the proposition. I don't know what others have taken from this revelation. If the revelation is true, it would certainly impress me that the church was relieved of it, of responsibility in this matter and the responsibility placed upon the individual. In other words, Joseph F. Smith, sixth president of the church, is publicly telling everyone that polygamy ended in 1890. It no longer had the approval of the church in 1890. 
for years and years and years, we as members have taken that to mean that the president of the church in 1890 said that was the end of polygamy. Polygamous marriages can no longer continue. But but what they're discussing here is that there's an alternate way to interpret this, and this alternate way was the understood way that was utilized by many within leadership and directed to members, general members and local leaders of the church, which was that the church had absolved itself of responsibility, but then placed the responsibility upon the individual. Joseph F. Smith Jr. now pipes in. He says, it's true. I obtained a copy of this revelation from Brother Rodney Badger. He let me take the original, and I made a copy and filed it in the historian's office. This was but a short time ago. So Joseph F. Smith acknowledges that he had the revelation, a copy of it. It was uh, put into the church archives, and uh, it didn't happen long before. Orson F. Whitney, again, one of the newer apostles, pipes in. Was it not the policy during your father's administration to leave everything to the mind of the individual? I know this was the case with me when I went to inquire if I should take the test oath. I was told to exercise my own judgment. Also, there is no authority as far as I can see in that revelation, no authority given to man to exercise such authority in marrying anyone. But the question of whether they should go into the relationship was left. And then there's a a mistake here. I don't know what was said left with, uh, and we don't know, and then it says commanded to go into it. But we have Orson F. Whitney on record here saying, yeah, that's the way I understood it. I was basically told that I could go get an answer for myself, and if I entered into a plural uh, marriage, meaning the test oath, that I should exercise my own judgment. And so he seems to give credibility to this other interpretation of what it meant that the church was absolved of responsibility with plural marriage in 1890. Charles W. Penrose then says... I feel that we should not express our own views on this revelation, but should have Brother Taylor's views. If he will give them, if not, we can get through with that question. See, he wants to, he wants to back off. Brother Penrose recognizes that if we let all the brethren share their two cents on this after, just as Orson F. Whitney has, that all they're going to do is offer more credibility to what John Taylor has just said. At least some of them are. President Lyman then says, the date of this revelation is September. 1886, four years before the manifesto of President Woodruff. This this proposed revelation by John W. Taylor's father, John Taylor, is recorded as the date of September 1886. And President Lyman continues. He says, and I remember at that time that President Taylor and all of his brethren were very strongly entrenched in the principle of plural marriage. From 1880 to 1890, men were almost commanded to enter it especially the officials of the church. We were all pretty well engaged in this question. The change came in 1890 when President Woodruff felt the necessity that plural marriage should cease, and after that he felt just as strong against it as President Taylor had felt for it before. It was subsequent to this that President Smith made his declaration that the church took no responsibility for the unlawful cohabitation of those in plural marriage and the performances of plural marriages. I would like to ask you if you have encouraged others to take plural wives or taken them yourself, or if you think these brethren who have copies of this revelation have taken it as an encouragement. For instance, Brother Robinson. Brother Taylor responds, I will answer that by asking if any one you have had here before you has ever said that I encouraged him. President Lyman answers, no, no one except Brother Wolf. And you admit having encouraged him under the direction of a superior officer. 
That is intriguing. Then David O. McKay, again, a newer apostle, not one who's ever practiced polygamy, jumps in. He says, I would like to know who the man is that directed you to instruct Brother Wolf to marry a certain party. Now, I'm going to pause here because here is the question of the whole, the whole ordeal. And if John W. Taylor speaks up here and says who it is that asked him to continue engaging in plural marriages and to direct others to do so, all of a sudden we're going to open up a whole can of worms. But here's what John W. Taylor responds. He says, I would not wish to take the issue with the president of the church or anyone who is at the head of the church. I went to President Smith's office the other day and had three and one half hour talk with him and John Henry Smith. And he said that he had never authorized anyone to perform a plural marriage. I am not saying that he is the one to whom reference we are on that point. Hiram M. Smith says, I would like Brother Taylor to feel that we are not pursuing him or any other man to do them harm. But simply to get at the bottom of these matters, I feel that you, Brother Taylor, are responsible for the circulation of that revelation. Brother Taylor responds, I am willing to put in a supplemental answer to the effect that I have never married anyone without the endorsement and authority of the president of the church. And if you desire, we'll give the names of those I have married. But I think this would be unwise. So John W. Taylor saying, look, guys, I'm trying to cover for other people. I've asked you to just let this be, you know, let this, this dead horse lay here. Let this sleeping dog lie. And if you just leave it alone and, you know, excommunicate me as you will, I'll be happy to go down as a, uh, as a scapegoat for others. But you keep asking and you keep asking. So listen, I have not performed any marriages without permission from the president of the church. And if you desire me to give you the names of the people I married, we can do that. But this would be really unwise on your end. And I think this is just such a huge statement from Brother Taylor. Hiram M. Smith then responds, I think you have implied in your attitude that President Smith has not told the truth. I feel that Brother Taylor desires to imply that President Joseph F. Smith gave him the authority, but will not deny or affirm it. John W. Taylor then answers, Brother Hiram, if I should turn my tongue loose, there would be the damnedest time in this state you have ever had. Hiram M. Smith then responds, I think you are creating the damnedest time by keeping still. John W. Taylor then answers, I have had a long talk with your father and will be pleased to go to him again if desired. But I think the less I say, the better it will be for the cause. I believe the church will go on and progress, although I might be dropped and fall by the wayside. Charles W. Penrose then responds, Brother Taylor is willing to assume all the responsibility if the council will permit him to withdraw his answer. Brother Taylor then says, I am willing to assume all the responsibility. Then Brother Richards pipes in again, new apostle, hasn't been part of this, hasn't witnessed all that's gone on before having come into the quorum when Brother Taylor resigns. He says, I don't think we should allow Brother Taylor to assume the responsibility, but should give us the full details and let us judge in regard to the matter. It has also been reported to us that a Miss Taylor in Mexico stated you tried to influence her to enter into a marriage relation with Brother Cowley. Brother Taylor responds, that is not true. I have never done that. Then a question comes in. I don't know who asked it, but a question comes in. Can you give us the details of that Canada case? John W. Taylor responds, I think the best thing to do is let the matter rest as it is, unless you brethren wish me to insert something else. Heber J. Grant 
then chimes in and says, I think the answer should be made by Brother Taylor himself and not upon the suggestion from us. His testimony has been in conflict with his answer, and he should reconcile them to his own credit. Brother Taylor responds, as far as I am concerned, I think it is better for me to insist that I say nothing more on this point. What he's basically saying, guys, is that, hey, I've contradicted myself, but it's because I'm trying to take the fall for others. And you guys keep pressing me to give you people's names and the information of what happened. And if I say those things, then I am going to put at risk others, including those in authority. Brother Ivan's then response says, as I understand this wolf matter was prior to 1904. John W. Taylor says, I do not remember. Brother Ivanson says, in April 1904, Brother Taylor was in Mexico and myself and wife, Owen Woodruff and his wife, Brother Taylor and his wife were together at Brother Woodruff's. And I delivered a message to Brother Woodruff and Taylor that plural marriage, plural marriages should stop. This message was from the president and Brother Taylor seemed to endorse it and mentioned it in our meetings. When we cut Brother Robinson, Bishop of Dublin, off the church, he seemed to imply that Brother Taylor had given him the right, and I have always felt that Brother Taylor was responsible for that marriage of Brother Robinson's, it having occurred after 1904. Brother Taylor then says, I dislike very much to discuss these things if I, as I talk the matter over with President Smith, and I am willing to take what President Lyman says on the point as he knows what was said. Hiram N. M. Smith then says that he objected to Brother Taylor's fortifying himself behind that three and one half hours conversation with President Smith. Taylor then says, I think the disfellowshipping of Brother Robinson was one of the greatest outrages perpetuated on the church. Brother Ivins then jumps in and says, I was instructed by President Smith to depose his bishopric, and I would like to know where this outrage exists. So Brother Taylor is sticking up for this other member of the church who got in trouble and Brother Ivan's having been the one sent to dispose of him from his calling is wondering, hey, what the heck's going on here? I want to know why I was in the wrong for doing that. So Brother Taylor then responds, I remember consulting with Brother Ivan's about Robinson's case, he having been promised long before President Smith's declaration that he should have another wife. And I referred him to President Smith, and he came to Salt Lake and saw the president, and I returned to my home in Provo, where he called upon me one day in my field, and while... And again, I don't know this word, this phrase here is something missing. He said he was crying for joy. He said that President Smith told him to hunt out the way. And if he could find the way, the president said, God bless you. He said he had found the way and asked if he could send his wife to me. And I told him yes, and I would care for her as long as I could. Brother Ivans then responded, relating the circumstances of the selecting of Brother Robinson as bishop of the stake presidency, as bishop by the stake presidency, but he was opposed by the high council of the war as stake on account of his dishonesty. But he was later chosen in the absence of Brother Ivans by Elder Abraham O. Woodruff. His reputation reputation in Dublin today is that he is a dishonest man, and Brother Pratt said before he died that Bishop Robinson was dishonest, and he is also a defaulter of the tithing funds. Brother Taylor then here kind of backs off a little bit. He says, I believed it was an outrage for Brother Robinson to be relieved of his bishopric. If what he said was true... But in view of President Smith's statement and the remarks of Brother Ivan's, my views will have to be modified. I feel that I was mistaken. I have no idea who married Brother Robinson to the girl. In other words, look, I was sticking up for the guy's character, but I wasn't involved anyway. So this has nothing to do with this matter here. Brother Ivan's then continues, You knew that Brother E.L. Taylor 
had been excommunicated from the church and that his daughter married Brother Cowley. All the statements which have which we have regarding this matter come from Nora Cowley in her letters to the brethren in her request for a divorce from Cowley. She says she was married in Canada to Brother Cowley against her will. She wanted to marry J.M. Tanner, who was courting her. She thought for himself, but Brother Cowley came up and Brother Tanner dropped out. Her bishop encouraged her to marry him, and her brother did the same. J.M. Tanner encouraged her, and she said you encouraged her, and that you related a dream about a large field of grain belonging to Brother Cowley, and he was about to lose it, but she could save it, and that they went to an old patriarch, and he mumbled something that she could not hear, which action made her feel that it was wrong. Brother Taylor responds, I never dreamed Barley. I never talked with her about this matter at all. I don't know anything about it. Brother Ivans then says, Have you ever heard this saying, If you can get a wife by hook or crook, get one and God bless you. Brother Taylor responds, Yes, Nathan Clark wanted to keep company with my daughter, Alta, and marry her. And I told him, go and get President Smith's consent, and you can have mine. That was about three years ago. Upon motion, recess was taken until 2.30 p.m. At that point, this uh, this matter continues. President Lyman says, have you advised with Brother Tanner on your case? Brother Taylor says, no, sir. I've met him once or twice, but never talked with him on my case. Charles W. Penrose says, why should you be willing to deny the charge in regard to aiding others and fail to deny the implication in the other part of the complaint? Brother Taylor responds, I said just what I wanted to. I could have denied the other part if I wanted to, but I did not want to. President Lyman says, do you know whether the girl in your office has a baby? Brother Taylor chimes in. I do not want to be chastised on this matter or discuss it at all. Heber J. Grant then says, I heard... I don't know whether it is true or not that you had, in the name of the Lord, cursed George Albert Smith. Brother Taylor then responds, No, sir. I think I told Brother Ivans that if George Albert Smith did not stop talking against me, I would make him suffer the next time I met him, and the curse of the Lord would rest upon him. The covenant of my brethren of the apostles when I left them was that they would not talk against me and my family. Brother Taylor then related in brief the circumstances connected with his leaving the Council of the Apostles. Again, he does this because some of these brethren weren't there for that. They're unaware of what is what that was all about. Charles W. Penrose then uh, speaks up, says, Have you ever heard of any of the brethren of the Twelve say anything against you? Brother Taylor says, No, I never meet them or with the people in their meetings. I have been ostracized and treated worse than an outsider. None of you ever invited me to your homes, and of course, I have never invited you much. And with the exception of George Albert Smith talking against me, and if he did not stop talking, the curse of God would rest upon him. And I told Brother Ivans if George Albert didn't stop, he would have to answer to me the first time I met him. I regard my covenants as sacred and expect the brethren to do the same. If this is the kind of blessing you get for doing what you consider right, it is a pretty poor reward. Hiram M. Smith then says, it is not, it is not for the good that you are humiliated or feel depressed, but for the rebellious spirit you have manifested. John W. Taylor then responds, You mustn't consider my feelings in this matter. You have a duty to perform, and it is up to you to perform it. If you feel my conduct has been such that you cannot fellowship me, if I were in your place, I would act upon it. If you have no evidence, I would get it. And if you can't get evidence, you should let it go. Charles W. Penrose then says, Do you recognize the rights of the councils of the church to question members of the church? 
Brother Taylor says, I am not going to answer that if it pertains to my family affairs. I would say that they have not. Brother Ivinson says, I would like to ask for my own information what George Albert Smith has said against Brother Taylor, as I may be guilty of this same breach. The feeling has been prevalent in Mexico, particularly that Brother Taylor and Cowley were disposed for political reasons only, and I have taken the view, although not present, that it was because they were out of harmony. Heber J. Grant expressed his view on the matter. President or, um, David O. McKay, of course, before he's president. David O. McKay says, You don't think there is anyone authorized today outside the president of the church to perform plural marriages or that there has been within the last two years? Brother Taylor says, No, sir. Hiram M. Smith then says, Brothers Taylor and Cowley have freely acknowledged that they were not in harmony with the apostles and presidency in declaring that plural marriage should discontinue, and related some facts connected with the fight made on the church by the ministerial association, the fight being made on the church through Reed Smoot. Brother Taylor responds, We were not out of harmony with the policies of the church as outlined by the president of the church. The question was asked, what do you think about the idea of your resigning as to the effect it would have upon the people? And I told you, brethren, that while I don't support you in the policy of disposing the apostles to make a showing in Congress and said I would not approve of the policy of the church in this regard, I would not oppose it. So he's hinting here that he resigned under pressure from the brethren to make it look good in front of Congress. Charles W. Penrose then says, I would like to mention one or two points in connection with this matter. The charge was made that brothers Taylor and Cowley were out of harmony with the Twelve with regard to marrying plural wives themselves and encouraging others to take plural wives. They said they would answer if they could have five minutes to talk with President Smith. President Smith refused to talk with them and therefore they refused to tell whether they had taken other wives. The question of the scope of the manifesto was also discussed. The other brethren of the quorum maintained that it was covered, that it covered every place, and they claimed it only referred to the United States. Then the question of their resigning came up. They were out of harmony with regard to plural marriage, and they resigned. The matter was kept quiet for a number of months, with the hope that they might reconcile themselves with the brethren later. They seemed to take the ground that they had the right to go ahead, and in this were out of harmony. Brother Lyman then said, that the facts of his going to Canada and the things that took place there were about as far as he could remember as Brother Taylor had related them. Brother Taylor was willing to make the sacrifice. It was on the ground that these brethren had entered into plural marriages and were out of harmony with the church on this question and were against the declarations of President Snow and Smith on the subject. I am of the impression, the impression that Brother Taylor told me that he was converted to this subject by Brother Cowley. It was because they were out of harmony with the authorities of the church on this subject that they were deposed and not for, and I don't know what this part is, appear from rumors that Brother Taylor has taken another wife within the last three or four years as also Brother Cowley, and this makes it much worse. I have loved these brethren and rejoiced to hear them talk and have never talked against them and said they were living in adultery, but have always tried to create the impression that these brethren were not deposed for political reasons. Hiram M. Smith said, Brother Reed Smoot said he would resign his position as Senator of the United States or as an apostle if it was thought necessary to protect the church. President Lyman then says, Do you feel that the course that you and Brother Cowley took was right? Do you feel in your heart that you were right? Brother Taylor says, Yes, I feel I was right in what I did. 
President Lyman responds, do you feel now that you or Brother Cowley have the right to perform plural marriages or encourage people in this thing? Brother Taylor responds, I do not feel that I have the right. And if Brother Cowley claims such authority now, that he has no such authority and has no right to start a propaganda of this kind. Brother Penrose responds, under this purported revelation from your father, do you think this authority is given to anyone to perform plural marriages on their own free agency? Brother Taylor responds, if a man has been authorized in any way by authority to perform marriage under that revelation, he would be. Brother Penrose responds, if a man had received the authority at some time in the past, would he have the authority now, notwithstanding the declarations of President Snow and Smith? Brother Taylor responds, it would depend upon the circumstances as to what was said to him at the time he received the authority and the condition under which he received it. I think there may be cases where a man might be justified in exercising the authority if he had the authority given him at one time. I think the president of the church should give the authority to every man who performs a plural marriage. I would not take advantage of your ideas as expressed here. In other words, look, guys, if the president of the church asks somebody to do it, which is the only times I've done it is because the president of the church has asked me, then certainly he has authority to do so. Brother Richard says, if Brother Cowley should come to you now and ask you to perform a marriage ceremony for him, do you think you would be justified? Brother Taylor says, no, sir, I would not be. And if I were to go to Brother Cowley, I don't think he would be. Brother Richards then responds, Have you, brethren, ever talked over the question of division in the church and there being two factions in the church? Brother Taylor responds, No, sir. I have talked more regarding this subject today than I have for a long while. I know nothing about a division in the church and don't sympathize with any movement of this kind to bring any schism to the church. I want you to understand me clearly and candidly upon these things, but I don't want to say anything about my own affairs, which would legally implicate me in these matters. You can assume these things if you want to deal with me accordingly, if you wish. I speak of these things in strict confidence and not to be talked about in your families even. I hope this will be the last talk we will have on these matters. I do not know that I can say any more. Things do get out of this quorum. I was not across the street last week before Brother Kelsch came up to me and said, I understand you a bit on the carpet. Things do get out, and I think if this could be remedied, it would be better. I have no objection to having you understand my family affairs, but I do not want to tell you. I have no aspirations in an ecclesiastical way. I have a large family of children. My wives to take care of and my business needs my attention. I don't say these things out of disrespect, but I would like you to do as you think best, not because of lack of testimony, but feel free in regard to my case. Everything has gone that was sacred to me, excepting my testimony. I still have that. There is nothing I am afraid to face in this world or in the next. I have nothing in the nature of fear. It doesn't exist. I have none. You are guiding the church, and I want am a different man to what I have been. I am not a man of spiritual temperament as I was at one time. I don't go to meetings because I would be asked to talk, and I would refuse, and it would be embarrassing to those presiding as well as to myself, and bring up discussions, discussions which I do not like to provoke. In my parting with you, I desire to go with a spirit of kindness and with the best feelings, but I don't want my affairs to be used for political purposes. I feel freer today than I have felt for the past four or five weeks. I have over 30 children, and I have always endeavored to impress upon them the testimony of the gospel and keep them in the right way. 
I have paid my tithing in the past by giving the church an interest in a company in Canada, in which I had placed nearly all my money. I want you to understand everything regarding my family, but I want to keep myself straight legally. I feel that you have treated me very respectfully, and I thank you all for that. And I will never run away from my brethren. I may have to hedge a little with the enemies, but I will never run away from my brethren. Brother Taylor was excused. The brethren spent some time considering the case of Brother Taylor, his attitude and expressions both before this council and to others and to members of the council individually. And President Lyman presented the following. Brother Taylor admitted of wrongs in Canada and Davis County. He tactfully admits his late marriage to his typewriter. He has cursed and threatened his brethren. He has put out a purported revelation of his father's, which his father never presented to the church nor his brethren. His construction upon it is very mischievous and against the position and discipline of the church by the living oracles. It was in his power to have restrained brothers Cowley and Woodruff, but instead his course lent encouragement to them. He has had no change of heart since he resigned his position in the council. He has not met us in a friendly and penitent spirit himself for his troubles. He said he never wants to be associated with the Twelve in time or eternity. When his brethren reported his cursing of George Albert Smith, he said they were liars. The action of the stake presidency and high council in the case of Bishop Robinson, he denounced as the damnedest outrage ever perpetuated. In a threatening manner, he tells us of the awful things that would happen to the church if he should open his mouth and tell what he knows. He greatly admires Henry S. Tanner and Nathan Clark, who we have found unsafe men. His examples and words give comfort and encouragement to those inclined to override the discipline of the church. On the 28th day of March, the council convened and further considered the case of Brother Taylor and unanimously rendered the following. Today... By unanimous vote of the Council of the Twelve Apostles, it was decided that John W. Taylor be, and he is hereby, excommunicated from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints for insubordination to the government and discipline of the Church, signed Francis M. Lyman. Now, it should be said here that um, one of the things that that Damon Smith and Brad Kramer bring up is that John W. Taylor had a right to be frustrated. There were a lot of members who were not excommunicated for taking plural wives, which would uh, nowadays be called adultery. Joseph W. Musser, son of Amos M. Musser, for example, who had been an assistant church historian working with Joseph F. and Joseph Fielding Smith, as well as Roberts. Joseph Musser was one of these guys exposed by the Tribune for having taken a plural wife, he got hauled in front of the Quorum of the Twelve and gets disfellowshipped, but then gets sent on a church mission to India. So it's intriguing that not everybody who is practicing plural marriage after this 1904 date is dealt with harshly or has their their church membership in jeopardy. In fact, to be disfellowshipped and then to be sent on a mission uh, kind of gives a really mixed message. The the other thing that we should kind of add as we begin to kind of wrap up this story is this kind of connection to the Woolies. So the Woolies, who are really responsible for the break-off into fundamentalism, they attribute their right to truth being through John Taylor Sr., third president of the church, that he had received a revelation and then shared it with uh, with Brother Woolley. 
that others were unaware of it, but that he was aware of it and that he was told by Brother Taylor to proceed with polygamy. I don't know if this has any connection to the revelation that John W. Taylor presents from his father, but it is intriguing as we look into fundamentalist groups and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and realize that this, this break-off from the LDS Church is a lot messier and contains a lot more history and information than I think the average member is aware of, and it's just not as cut and dry as as most members uh, would make out. That said, I'm certainly not a fan of fundamentalism and and certainly don't take a side on that direction. I don't want to be misunderstood here. I'm simply presenting the story and and wanted people to be more informed of of what all took place with the life in this trial of John Whitaker Taylor. Wrapping up, we should at least acknowledge that Brother Taylor remained a believer in Mormonism up to his death. He died of stomach cancer at his home in Forestdale, Salt Lake County, Utah, at the age of only 58. This was only a few years after his being excommunicated from the church. He died in his home October 10th, 1916, so four years after this uh, this trial. In August of 1916, Taylor was posthumously baptized by proxy and reinstated into the church by two stake presidents. However, a year later, the first presidency officially stated that the reinstatement was null and void. He was later officially rebaptized, though, on May 21st, 1965. He received the ordinances of restoration of blessings by proxy under the hands of Joseph Fielding Smith, president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles with the unanimous approval of the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve. His family remained faithful to the Church of Jesus Christ. So it is interesting that Joseph Fielding Smith, one of the last people present, last people alive present at that meeting, with the exception of, I believe, President David O. McKay would have been present at this time. With the exception of those two, they are probably the only two alive that were part of this. And Joseph Fielding Smith proceeds to get John W. Taylor rebaptized and to restore his blessings. So listeners, that to me is an intriguing story. And it's one that I hope you found interesting as we, as we dive deeper at times into LDS history and, uh, and in this case also theology. It's late. I'm going to head off to bed. But I really hope that each of you enjoyed this episode as long as it was and, and perhaps at times maybe mundane. Again, I hope that uh, some of you might reach out and support the podcast. I really appreciate it. It really helps me to continue to make this work. God bless each of you. May the Lord warm your shoulders. And in the sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen. Taking out my issues, never he